Church, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to Genesis chapter 31 as we continue in the spirit of worship and seek to hear from the Lord this morning. Not from man, but from the Lord. Last week, we got back into Genesis after having taken a few weeks off, and we covered the first 21 verses of chapter 31, which really was act one of a three-act play. Um, in the, those first 21 verses, we, we saw the Lord show up to Jacob in Paddan Aram and uh, tell him, it's time to come home. It's time to come back to Canaan. Um, he had lived in Paddan Aram for 20 years. 20 years earlier, he had left Canaan, partly out of fear of his twin brother Esau, who was trying to take vengeance on him for what he had done to his brother, and partly out of trying to find a bride, trying to find a wife. So now, 20 years later, he has not one wife, but two. He has uh, what seems to be already a full quiver of children and a very impressive flock of sheep and goats and camels and donkeys. And so last week, we heard the Lord show up to Jacob and say, it's time to go home now. It's time to go back to Canaan. And then we listened to him as he explained that to his wives, Rachel and Rebecca. Excuse me, Rachel and Leah, not his mom. Rebecca's back in Canaan. As he explained this to uh, Rachel and Leah. And we noted something there. I hope you noted something there that as Jacob was teaching his, uh, Rachel and Leah about God's providence and God's sovereignty and how God had been with him all along and will continue to be with him. As, as Jacob was teaching them, I hope you saw the wheels began to turn in his mind. And he began to, to see that God had been with him and that Yahweh truly was trustworthy that he had been with him and that he had been for him throughout this entire time in Paddan Aram and that he would continue to be so. Often that's how it is. That those who have the, the, the honor and the privilege and the responsibility to teach in any given situation are the ones who end up learning the most. It's one of my privileges of being able to teach God's word each and every week is that I get to I get the benefit of feasting on God's word and learning much from it. Perhaps you, in, in the situations in which God has given you to teach God's word, whether it's a Bible study or whether it's your children, your family, and your home, that you're the one who is blessed. You're the one who learns and gets so much more out of it than even those whom you are teaching. It certainly happened with Jacob here. So anyway, he, he convinces Rachel and Leah that, it's, that, that God had been with them, that God will continue to be with them. They realize there's nothing left for us in Paddan Aram. Our father has sold us. Our father has treated us like strangers and aliens. He has, in a sense, abandoned us. There's nothing left for us here, but God has been with Jacob, and so we will follow him back to Canaan. And so they pack up, and at the end of the passage that we read last week, they they leave Paddan Aram and they set out on their journey back to Canaan. And that's where we pick up the story this morning. The, the main lesson of those first 21 verses is also the main lesson for the 
second two-thirds of chapter 31 that we'll cover this morning. If you are God's child, he is with you, categorically. And he is for you. His hand of providence is on you. And his divine protection is an impenetrable shield about you. Last week we used the analogy of the Secret Service. The Secret Service may not always hear them, but they're always there and always willing to go to whatever lengths they need to in order to protect those who are under their charge. The same way with the Lord. We may not always see Him or hear Him, but the Lord is with His children. He is with His children. He is for His children. So I want you to listen as we read verses 22 through 55, through the remainder of the chapter, chapter 31. I want you to listen to that recurring theme as Moses, under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us this passage. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban and his kinsmen pitched their tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives with a sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with myrrh and songs, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you long greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live in the presence of our kinsmen. Point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt about the tent, all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods. Set it before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts, 
I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was, by day the heat consumed me and the cold by night. And my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I have been in your house. I have served you 14 years for your two daughters and six for your flock. And you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. And all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these daughters or for their children whom they have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jager Shahudatha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mizpah. For he said, the Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is, is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me. The heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we ask now that you would attend to the reading of your word with your Holy Spirit to give us understanding, both of what it means and how we are to apply it to our lives. We pray, Father, for spiritual fruit as a result of your word. We pray that even now, in the hearts and minds of those in this room and downstairs and even online, Father, that you would do your mighty work. Let not this word return void. Let it accomplish everything that you intend for it to accomplish. And may it be for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've titled this sermon Laban pursues Jacob but really that's just a really small part of this that only lasts his pursuing of Jacob only lasts three verses Um, there are six scenes in the second uh, half or two-thirds of chapter 31 the first five scenes make up act two which is this cataclysmic um, accounting uh, as Laban and Jacob meet up in the hill country of Gilead and we see this conflict um, ensue. And then the sixth scene is this one scene act, act three, where Laban and Jacob enter into a covenant of peace with one another. And so what I want to do this morning, very simple um, uh, thing on the screen behind me, just want to walk through this narrative together 
and seek to draw out some principles for us to apply to our lives today as we understand this story. So at the end of last week's passage, as we said, Jacob and his crew pack up and they set out from Paddan Aram to head to Canaan. But we're told in verse 22 at the outset of our passage this morning that um, Laban finds out about their secret departure three days later. And that in and of itself, already from the very beginning, is providential. That Jacob gets a three-day head start. Now why, why did it take three days for Laban to get the news that Jacob, his son-in-law, and his two daughters, and their whole family, and their whole clan, and their whole flock, I don't know, how could they do this secretly, right? Why did it take three days for him to get the news that they had done this? Well, remember back in chapter 30, when Laban was deceptively removing all the spotted goats and the striped sheeps, and, and removing them from the flock so as to enrich his flock and so as to diminish the chances of Jacob's flock prospering. As he's doing this, or after he did that, we're told that he, he set a three-day journey between his flock and, Laban's, and Jacob's flock. So, so he's the one who set this three-day journey between them. And so the three-day head start that Jacob gets in chapter 31 is because of the three-day journey that Laban himself put between Jacob and himself. And so it's no coincidence that they get a three-day head start. Jacob was planning this, or excuse me, God was planning this all along. Just as it was no coincidence back in chapter 30 that Jacob's flock is the one that flourished. It wasn't coincidence. It was in spite of Laban's attempts to do otherwise. It was in spite of Jacob's uh, silly, superstitious attempts to put spotted sticks and striped sticks in front of the sheep as they mated. In spite of all that, God caused Jacob's flock to prosper. It was all due to the sovereign hand of God. And so we already see that at play here in the story, that God is present with his people and he's providing and he's protecting his people and that his promises will not go unmet. We already see his presence at work, just like that unseen secret service agent, as if he's holding Laban back, giving Jacob a three-day head start on his journey. But as we continue in the story, clearly that head start, that three-day head start, was not enough for them to get all the way to Canaan. It was just enough for them to get to the hill country of Gilead, where we have this meeting of the two clans. Now, Gilead was not known as Gilead at that time. The name for that place would come from what occurs later in this chapter. But while Laban is there, he has a dream. And the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, shows up to him in his dream and tells him in verse 24, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. In other words, God was saying, when you catch up with Jacob tomorrow, when you catch up with him, when you're in front of him, 
Don't say anything good to him that's going to woo him, try to woo him back to patting around, that's, that's going to try to tempt him to come back with you. Don't, don't pull your tricks, Laban, of trying to get him to stay with you longer. But also don't say anything bad to him that will threaten him or, 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 or threaten violence upon him. Don't say anything good to him to, to keep him there because I've got plans for him. And my plans for him include him going back to Canaan. My plans for Jacob and the nation that I'm bringing through him revolve around him and his people being in the promised land. So don't woo him back. Don't don't try to get him to come back. But also, don't you harm him. Don't you say anything to threaten violence on him because he is mine and I'm protecting him. So don't touch him. Again, It's like a secret service agent showing up in the dark of night. Don't you dare. Don't you dare. He is mine. So the next day comes, Laban catches up with him, and then Laban launches into this very confusing speech in verses 25 through 30. This speech is half him playing the victim and half him accusing uh, Jacob of wrongdoing. And he almost comes across as someone suffering from bipolar disorder here. I mean, in one case, he, is, he comes across as this magnanimous benefactor that all he wants to do is kiss his grandkids. And then in the next breath, he comes across threatening violence on Jacob for what he has done. To listen to Laban here in this passage, you would think that Jacob is some horrible person that has terribly wronged Laban in some horrible way and that on the flip side Laban is this just this kind and generous father who has been taken advantage of and all he wants to do is kiss his grandkids goodbye so listen uh, as we walk through this my my sarcasm here at Laban's portrayal of himself is on purpose In verse 26, he basically accuses Jacob of kidnapping his daughters. Rachel and Leah were his wives, and there is nothing in all of Scripture to make us think that he ever treated them with anything other than honor and respect and love and care. And so this was Laban just making stuff up, that that, that Jacob led them away with the sword. In verse 27, he plays the the magnanimous benefactor. Why did you leave without telling me, Jacob? If you had told me, I would have thrown you this big going away party. And church, if you believe that Laban would have celebrated Jacob's departure, then I've got some oceanfront property in Kansas to sell you. Jacob was Laban's cash cow. Laban's wealth flourished under Jacob's care. And you should know that, Jacob, uh, that Laban would have done anything. He would have connived, he would have tricked, he would have deceived just as he had up to this point in order to keep Jacob in Paddan Aram and in charge of his flocks. So he was not some magnanimous father-in-law here. In verse 28, Laban plays the doting father and grandfather Why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters and my grandkids goodbye? 
We should recall at this point the testimony of Rachel and Leah earlier in this chapter that we looked at last week. The daughters of Laban, we should recall their testimony of what they thought about their daughter. In those verses, they said, we no longer have an inheritance here with our father. He's treated us as foreigners. He's treated us as if we're strangers, as if we're no longer related to him. He has, in a sense, abandoned us as his daughters. He has sold us. And the price that he got for selling us is 14 years of free labor that greatly enriched him, and that he has squandered on himself. And then they said the wealth that, our, that, that, that the Lord took from our father, he has now given to our new family. So that's the testimony of Laban's daughters about Laban's character. But now Laban would have us believe here in verse 28 that all he wanted to do was to kiss his daughters and his granddaughters farewell. I don't buy it. I don't think so. But in verse 29, Laban essentially threatens Jacob. He says, it is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. So Laban asserts that he had the power to do harm to Jacob, that it was in his power to do violence to Jacob because of what, how he felt Jacob had wronged him. Now, in a certain sense, Laban is right here. His, his clan is still much larger than Jacob's at this point. The language that, with which Moses writes this passage is almost militaristic. Laban's uh, clan here is um, portrayed as the superior pursuing army, and, and Jacob's clan is portrayed as the weaker retreating army here. And so in a sense, he was right. He had the power to do him harm. But in another sense, he didn't have any power at all to do him harm. It was not true that it was in Laban's power to do harm to Jacob because the God of Jacob, Yahweh, had shown himself to Laban the night before and said, you shall not touch him. You're not going to lay a hand on him. Apparently, Laban knew enough about the God of Jacob to know that he was a powerful God, and so he wasn't going to touch him. He was refrained from any violence. Just like a secret service agent who was holding back Laban's hand from doing violence, Laban couldn't touch him because the Lord was staying his arm from doing any harm to his children. But then Laban closes this mini-speech in verse 30 with this very harsh accusation. Why did you steal my gods? And we recall from the passage that we read last week that while they were still in Paddan Aram, Laban went away to shear his sheep, and while he was away, Rachel snuck into his tent and stole his household gods. We're not told then and we're not told now why she did this. Perhaps it was because she was so deeply ingrained in the polytheism of her family 
that she was having a very difficult time considering that now she was going to have to trust one God. So maybe it was just that in her upbringing that she felt like she needed these gods. Or maybe this was just a parting shot on dad. You mistreated me in this way. You sold us. You squandered our inheritance. You treated us as strangers. I'll show you. I'll take your, your gods. These were idols. They were probably made of stone or wood or something. They were carved into the image of false gods. But either way, it was wrong of her to do this. And it nearly costs her her life. But regardless, Laban accuses Jacob here of stealing these gods from him. And remember, we're, we're told here, Jacob has no knowledge of this. He has no knowledge of what Rachel had done. So how does Jacob answer Laban? Again, Laban's basic complaint, his, his, his fundamental beef is twofold. Number one, why did you leave secretly? Number two, why did you steal my gods? And so in Jacob's reply in verses 31 and 32, he answers both of those complaints. First of all, in verse 31, he says, I didn't tell you I was leaving because I was afraid. His, his fundamental reason for leaving secretly was fear. Fear that, that Laban would, would prevent, by force, would prevent his wives from going with him. And, and perhaps even his grandsons, the, those who would become the 12 tribes of Israel, that maybe Laban would prevent them from even going with me, and maybe he would take the flock as well. And based on Laban's reaction here, I think Jacob's fears were well-founded. But then Jacob answers the second complaint of Laban in verse 32, and he says basically, I, I don't have your gods. I, I don't have them. Search my tents. Look through everything. In fact, I'm so sure that you're not going to find them that I hereby pronounce a death sentence on the one in whose tent you do find it. And Jacob doesn't realize what he's saying. He doesn't realize that in saying that, he's putting his precious Rachel, the one whom he truly loves, he's putting her life on the line, putting her life at risk. So Jacob is not even aware of how desperate his situation is and how dangerous the situation is both for him and for his family. He really needs that unseen Secret Service agent to protect him and his family here. And he's not even aware how much he needs that. He doesn't even know how badly he needs divine protection here. So what happens? In verses 33 through 35, Laban searches Jacob's tent. First, he goes into Jacob's tent. Then he goes into Leah's tent. Then he goes into the tent of the two female servants. And he doesn't find anything, doesn't find the gods. And then he goes into Rachel's tent. And Rachel, we're told, had put her father's idols in her camel's saddle. And then she sat on them. And so when dad gets closer, closer, she says, I'm sorry, dad, I can't get up because the way of women is upon me. And so Laban never finds the idols. But I think we should note here the symbolism 
of what this is saying about Laban's false gods. Rachel hides them. She sits on them. And she sits on them when the way of women is upon her. And as Moses pens this story under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we should not miss what he's saying as he contrasts these gods with Yahweh. These false gods can be hidden. They can be lost. They can be misplaced. But you can't hide Yahweh. He created everything. You can't escape his presence. And so you can never lose him. You can never misplace him. And you can never hide him. These false gods, they can be sat upon. But don't try that with Yahweh. And most graphically, these false gods can become unclean. But Yahweh is not just holy. He's not just holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. By the way, in Hebrew, there are no exclamation points. And the way to draw emphasis is not through exclamation points or bold face fonts. It is through repetition. And the holiness of God in Isaiah 6 is the only character trait of God that is repeated three times. He is holy, holy, holy. He cannot be defiled. But the false gods can and here are. And so again, again we see God intervening. This unseen God, Yahweh, intervening to protect Jacob and his family. That, that, that tension, the tension in the story as we were reading, I, I hope you felt it, it goes sky high as Laban walks into Rachel's tent. And, and we feel that tension, right? We, we feel, well, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? The idols are right there. I mean, they're right there. All Laban has to do is move his hand just a little bit further to the right as he's feeling through the tent. And this story would have ended completely differently. But he doesn't. Providentially, sovereignly, he doesn't. And he leaves the tent empty-handed and returns now to Jacob. And now Jacob unloads on him. Now in verses 36 through 43, Jacob lets him have it. 20 years of Laban cheating him, deceiving him, tricking him, now just explode onto Laban. In verses 36 through 37, he's like, okay, where is it? Show me the God that I stole from you. Show me my sin against you. You have falsely accused me of stealing from you. And then in verses 38 through 40, he basically says, I've served you well for 20 years. And the way that he describes how he cared for Laban's flock shows us that he went well beyond the call of duty in caring for and providing for and protecting Laban's flocks of sheep and goats. But you cheated me, Laban. 
you cheated me. And you come against me? You're the one who cheated me. You changed my wages ten times. And, and by the way, these changes in his wages were not in, in the upward direction. These were not raises. He just kept, Laban just kept moving the goalpost on how his wages were to be calculated. Each time intending to lower Jacob's wages. But look what Jacob says in verse 42. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. In other words, if if it hadn't been for the Lord, then I would be heading back to Canaan right now penniless. And you wouldn't be wanting me to stay. You'd be kicking me out. Again, we hear Jacob confessing openly, openly, openly that the flock flourished while he cared for Laban's flock. His flock flourished only because God's, of God's divine intervention. God was with him and God was for him. His hand of providence miraculously moved even within the genetics of the sheep and the goats such that Jacob's flock would prosper, not Laban's. When Laban decided to change his wages and say, now the spotted sheep shall be your wages, only spotted sheep were born. And when he changed and he said, now the striped sheep shall be yours, only striped sheep were born. And Jacob gives all the credit to the Lord. It wasn't because of his superstitious attempts to put spotted sticks and striped sticks in front of the sheep as they mated. No, it was because the Lord was with him. It was because of the God of Abraham. He made it happen. But Jacob was also saying there in verse 42 that God rebuked Laban in his dream. He said, Laban, when God showed up to you in your dream, he saw my affliction, he saw the work that I had done. He saw how I had served you with integrity. And he rebuked you. He rebuked you last night, Laban. That's what happened. So no, Laban, in fact, you do not have the ability to do harm to me. You do not have the power within you to do harm to me because your hand is being stayed by an unseen God, an unseen secret service agent who will not let you do harm to me. So what is Laban's response to Jacob's defense and all that happened there? Well, in verse 43, 43, Laban raises the white flag and says, essentially, what can I do? What can I do? I can't make you return with me. I can't stop you from going. What, What can I do? And the answer is nothing, right? The answer is nothing. Laban can't do anything that God doesn't allow him to do. Do you see that here? Don't miss that. Laban can't do anything to Jacob unless God allows him to do it. Unless God purposes him to do it. Otherwise, Laban can't lift, lift a finger. 
And so Laban must press for peace. He's got no other option. He must press for peace here. And so in the closing verses, verses 44 through 55, we see Laban and Jacob enter into this covenant of peace, this peace treaty, if you will. And as you go through those closing verses, it's interesting to see that Laban does most of the talking. (laughs) Ever prideful, ever trying to work his conniving, He's the one who does most of the talking, and Jacob, who has learned a very important lesson of humility over the last 20 years, is surprisingly quiet, surprisingly quiet. Even when Laban says in verse 43, these these daughters are my daughters, and and these sons or these children are my children, and, and, and this flock is my flock, and all that you see is mine. Jacob doesn't say a word. I I would be like, no, they're not. They were yours, but Yahweh has given them to me. They're they're mine now, Jacob. Hands off. They're not yours anymore. But Jacob's quiet. Later in verse 50, Laban's words seem to imply that he believes that Jacob is the one who must be watched in this, not himself. He says, if you oppress my daughters... Or if you take wives besides my daughters, God's going to see you. God's going to see you do that. Again, I would have been like, what are you talking about? I have treated them with love and respect and honor and care. And you're the one who has mistreated them. You think I'm going to mistreat them now? But Jacob doesn't say a word. He doesn't need to. He's quiet because the Lord has fought his battles for him. He doesn't need to defend himself. The Lord's already done that. The Lord has defended him. There's a a quiet inner strength in Jacob in this passage that reminds us where he believes his strength comes from. Not himself, but from the Lord who is with him and is for him. So they enter into this covenant of peace together they set up stones in a pile a heap a pillar and this heap of stones is a sign of this covenant of peace between them and they also serve as a boundary marker that they will need to observe for ages to come and then they call upon God to be a witness of the covenant between them and it's interesting Laban seems to be hedging his bets here he calls upon all the gods that he can think of the God of Abraham the God of Nahor, Abraham's brother, which was a pagan god, not Yahweh, and the God of their father, which conceivably is another god. So he's like, all the gods that I can think of, I'm going to call upon them and just kind of cover all of my bases here. But Jacob calls upon the one true God. And it's interesting how he refers to him here. He calls him, at just as he did back in verse 42, the fear of his father Isaac. This was an unusual name for God, but it was Moses writing this and reminding us that Jacob is no longer afraid of Laban. And Jacob is no longer afraid of Laban's false gods and Jacob's, uh, Laban's power to do him harm. Jacob only fears one God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, Yahweh, the great I Am, the Lord his God. 
I think this covenant here at the end of this chapter means different things for Laban than it does for Jacob. For Laban, I think it really is a sense of like relief for him. It's, it's, a, it's a source of, of defense for his future safety and that of his family. He really believes this is going to protect him. I think he's truly worried that Jacob one day will seek revenge, will, will come back and seek revenge. Jacob had flourished. His wealth had grown and his power had grown as he spent time in Paddan Aram, especially the last six years. And certainly Laban had no reason to believe that Yahweh wouldn't continue to grow his wealth and his power. And he thought someday he's going to come back and he's going he's to take revenge because I have taken advantage of Jacob big time. So I think he looks at this heap of stones and he thinks, whew, protected from this evil Jacob who might come back. I don't think Jacob looked at this heap of stones the same way. He knew that no pile of stones was going to keep Laban from breaking his word. If Laban wanted to cross that boundary and do harm to him at some point, Laban would just cross that boundary. He had already shown his hand of what he was willing to do and how he's willing to deceive and connive. Jacob had no reason to believe that Laban wouldn't continue to do that. Jacob knew that the only thing that would stay Laban's hand was his God, Yahweh. And so for Jacob, this pile of stones was not a memorial that reminded him of some kind of man-made peace, some kind of secular treaty with uh, Laban and his clan. Instead, this pile of stones for him was a memorial that reminded him of how his God had been with him every step of the way for the last 20 years. Every night as he stayed up and protected the flocks from predators, every time Laban changed his wages, every promise that Laban revoked, every trick he manufactured against him. Yahweh was with him, watching him and watching Laban, guiding him, protecting him, and instructing him. At this point, I think we would do well to remember the promise of Yahweh that God made to Jacob at Bethel as he left Canaan and was on the way to Paddan Aram. He stopped in Bethel, and he slept on a rock. And the Lord appeared to him in a dream and made a promise to him. And this is what the Lord promised him back in chapter 28. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad from the west to the east, to the north, to the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And Jacob didn't know what that was going to mean for the next 20 years. While he was in Paddan Aram, he 
didn't know why God would allow Laban to trick him into marrying Leah instead of Rachel. He may have wondered if God had forgotten about him when Laban made him promise to work another seven years of free labor to Laban in order to marry Rachel. When Laban stole a bunch of spotted sheep and striped goats in order to enrich his flock and diminish Jacob's flock, Jacob probably didn't understand what God was doing in all of that. When Laban caught up with Jacob in the hill country of Gilead at the beginning of our story here, Jacob may have wondered, God, did you give him a three, us a three-day head start just so that he would meet, us, meet up with us here? Why, Lord? Why? And when Laban came back from searching the tents for the stolen idols empty-handed, Jacob had no clue how much God had come through for him in protecting them. He had no clue of how close they came to being destroyed had Laban found the idols in Rachel's tent. Jacob had arrived in Paddan Aram 20 years early, earlier, prideful, fearful, and full of deceit in his own heart. And now Jacob is leaving Paddan Aram 20 years later with a full family, a full quiver, but also no longer afraid humble man, having learned important lessons of humility, and full of faith in Yahweh. He leaves having learned lessons that can only be learned through trials, as, as James would later write in his letter, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Jacob has learned these lessons. But how do we apply the lessons that Jacob has learned to our lives? Here's the main takeaway for us, church. When life gets hard, when it gets difficult, when something is happening in your life that challenges you to your core something that you don't understand that you're having a hard time figuring out where you don't know where your next step needs to be remember that God is sovereign and sometimes he uses trials like that to teach us lessons that we would not have learned otherwise he sometimes uses trials to grow our faith in him, to, to trust him for what he's going to do next. Sometimes he uses big obstacles in our lives to showcase our weakness and to showcase his power and his plan. Be reminded in those times that God is always present with his people. He's not absent He's not asleep. He is awake and he is attentive and he's watching. He's watching his children and he's watching the enemies of his children. And be reminded that he's working. 
Romans 8, 28. That God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That God is working all things for our good and his glory. He's working in the midst of that hard time, in the midst of that trial, in the midst of that thing that you can't figure out what in the world he's doing. He's working. He's doing something. And that something that he's doing is ultimately for your good and his glory. Remember that he's with you. Remember that he's for you, that he will always protect his children and that nothing will touch you unless he allows it. And if he allows it, if he lets something touch you, then even that is being worked together for your good and his glory. And so church being reminded of that, through stories like this, our response in these hard seasons of life must be to trust him and then keep trusting him, to remain faithful, keep trusting the Lord no matter how confusing life gets, to keep pursuing holiness, to keep pursuing righteousness, to keep doing the right thing regardless of how hard it gets and, and, and regardless of how much it costs. To not give in to the siren call of sin and temptation no matter how pleasurable that call promises to be. Don't stop running the race. Don't stop serving Christ. Don't stop encouraging the brothers. Don't stop engaging in the Great Commission. And don't give up no matter how hard it gets. Keep trusting him. Keep resting in his providence. Keep relying on his divine protection and guidance because of who he is and because of what he's done and because of what he deserves. One day it'll all make sense. It probably doesn't now. But one day it will. It'll all make sense. But until then, keep trusting him. Keep trusting that he's with you, that he's for you, and that that's enough. That's how we apply a passage like this to our own lives. But that's just on the micro level. There's two ways to look at a narrative of Scripture like this. One is to look at that person's life and how God came through for that person and to learn about the Lord through that and apply that to our lives to see how he will also be with us and for us in our life. And that's good and right and a proper application. But we would do well to also back up 30,000 feet and look at this from a macro level and not just see what God is doing in Jacob's life, but to see what he is doing across the landscape of redemptive history. God is not just protecting Jacob. He's forming a nation. He's forming a nation through which all the peoples of the earth will be blessed, as he promised at Bethel. He's forming a people and preserving a people through which he will bring his son into the world to, be, to, to, to live a perfect life, perfectly righteous, and to die in our place on a cross as an atoning sacrifice for all of those who place their hope and their trust in his finished work on the cross. So that sinful people like us 
who struggle to trust God, who want to trust him more, but, but sometimes we just falter in trusting him when times get hard. And sinful people like us, broken people like us, needy people like us, who deserved eternal judgment can be reconciled to God so that God can welcome into his family worshipers who will worship him, not just in the blip on the timeline of eternity that we have in this life, but forever. What is God doing here? Is he protecting Jacob? Yes. Will he be with us? Will he be for us? Those who are his children in this life? Yes, absolutely. But he's also forming a nation. He did form a nation, right? He preserved a people. And out of that people, he did bring his son. And as we celebrated through the Lord's Supper, he, he sent his son to the cross to rescue sinners like us. And so if, if God has saved you by grace through faith, and you look at a story like this and you say, nothing will stop the hand of providence from accomplishing all of his promises. And he has done that in my life. He's done that in my brothers' and sisters' lives. Praise be to God. He will bring us home one day. But if you're here this morning, you haven't placed your faith in Christ. Maybe you're trusting in yourself to, to kind of get you across the line of acceptance with God. You know, do enough good. Avoid enough bad that you might make the grade in the end. The overwhelming testimony of God's word says that is folly. You cannot. You are, just as I was and every other person in here, you are stained with your own rebellion against a holy God. And if Christ does not pay for that, you will. And I beg of you, if that describes you, Stop trusting yourself to make yourself well, to make yourself acceptable, to make yourself good enough. And throw yourself at the foot of the cross and trust in Christ alone. That's why he came. That's why he preserved the people, to rescue sinners like you and I. Will you come to him in faith? Let's pray.